It was around 8 p.m. on the evening of September 2, 1982, when 15-year-old Karen Stitt finished up a 10-mile bus ride from Palo Alto to Sunnyvale, California to meet her boyfriend at a 7-Eleven. The two high schoolers hung out at the 7-Eleven for a little bit, playing video games, before grabbing a drink from inside and walking a short ways north to a golf land for a fun night out. The two enjoy their evening to the fullest because there were only a few more of these summer nights before the new school year was going to start back up again. So after playing some mini golf, the two walked over to an elementary school and that's when they realized the time. It was after midnight. Karen, who was now wearing her boyfriend's hat, told him, I can get on the bus myself. You just get home before your parents realize that you're about to break curfew. David was super reluctant to leave her, but he knew that she had done this many times before and she knew her way around on the number 22 bus. So even though he was reluctant, the two began to walk in opposite directions. David kept an eye on Karen just as long as he could as she made her way to the bus stop near El Camino Real and Wolf Road. He watched her for as long as he could before he took off in the direction of his house. And being that it was 1982, there would be no text or call from Karen when she got home. These were the days of having one phone in your house with like a two-foot cord attached to it. So as David got ready to go to bed, he still had that guilty feeling going on inside of him. But he was also smitten about the night that he and Karen had just spent together. And instead of hearing from Karen the next day, what he had heard was Karen never made it on to the 22 bus back to Palo Alto that night. On September 3rd, just after 11 a.m., cops were called to the scene of a deceased nude woman lying next to a cinder block wall in the area of El Camino Real and Wolf Road, which was only about 100 yards away from Karen's bus stop. A delivery driver making a drop at a garden center nearby had spotted the lifeless body. Authorities responded right away and began the daunting task of trying to identify this deceased woman who would later be confirmed to be Karen. Karen, who would have been a junior in high school, had been kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and brutally murdered. The crime was possibly a crime of passion by the looks of it, but no one could think of a single soul who even disliked Karen. Karen was left with stab wounds on her neck, chest, abdomen, and back. Her wrists were bound with the shirt that she had been wearing, and her ankles were tightly bound with her jacket. The dirt and leaves that were around Karen's feet were perfectly disturbed as if she had been kicking or shuffling before she passed away in that very spot. An autopsy was performed the next day on September 4th by Dr. Angelo Ozoa. He documented that of the 59 total stab wounds on Karen's body, 18 of those were to her heart and 10 were to her lungs. Those 28 stab wounds were her cause of death, with many additional stab wounds to her neck. Police pointed the finger directly at Karen's boyfriend as a possible killer and as their only suspect. David denied having any involvement and swore up and down that he would have never and could have never. And the only thing that he was guilty of was allowing Karen to walk to the bus stop and wait by herself that night. Karen's grandmother said that knowing David, she didn't think he would be physically capable of committing a crime of this magnitude, that there was just no way. A tip came into law enforcement about a white truck that was seen the night that Karen was killed right in the area where she had been found. A machinist working late night on the 2nd into the morning of the 3rd said that he noticed a white truck that had a big stripe on the side of it sitting idle in the same area. 
He knew that this truck was out of place and he thought it was weird, but he didn't go over to see what was going on because there was really no reason for him to. And this tip would end up leading nowhere. Karen's case would sit in a cold case storage unit for more than 40 years. This was until the Sunnyvale Police Department opened up a cold case unit in 2014 thanks to a grant that they had received. And guess whose name was first on the list of cold cases in the area? Karen Stitt. And that's when Detective Matt Hutchison was officially assigned to the case. Despite the investigators before him, who gave Karen's case 100% of their best work, her case had no leads or evidence coming in at all. But that was all about to change because now it was in a fresh set of hands with a fresh set of eyes, and there were huge advancements in the tools that law enforcement uses to investigate cases just like Karen's. With genetic genealogy on the scene, Detective Hutchison runs swabs of blood and semen taken from Karen's body, her jacket, and that cinder block wall through the system. And there was good news. They all came back with the same partial profile of an unknown male, finally excluding Karen's boyfriend at the time, David Wood, who had been the first person on police's radar. So that excluded one possible suspect, but frustratingly, when they dropped the sample into CODIS, it didn't come back with any possible match, which kind of put the investigator back at square one. It wouldn't be until 2019 that Detective Hutchison comes upon some very helpful information through an anonymous tip. The tip was that the son of a woman named Rose Aguilar Ramirez was responsible for Karen's murder. So knowing that this statement alone would never hold up in court, Detective knew that he had to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt and that he had a lot of work ahead of him. So Hutchison teams up with a genetic genealogist and the two follow a trail of public information databases online, thoroughly beginning to build a case and establishing probable cause. Through their internet searches, they're able to find a Rose Aguilar Ramirez who lived in Northern California for most of her life with records going back about 50 years. This was obviously a great way to kick off the investigation. 2021 records would show that she was living in Fresno, California, which was about 160 miles from Sunnyvale where the crime took place. Records showed that Rose was married to a man named Rudolph Ramirez Sr., And together, they had four sons, Rudolph, Gary, Russell, and Ronald, who later in life would legally change his name to Merrick. Official birth records were pulled for all of these men, successfully confirming that they were the children of Rose and Rudolph. This case went from zero to 60 fast. So Hutchison would find that Rose passed away in 2012 and Rudolph passed away in 2019. Both of their obituaries, again, confirming that they were survived by four sons who were all still living. From 2021 through 2022, digging through public records, job records, and resident history, Hutchison was able to eliminate Ronald and Russell as having anything to do with the murder of Karen, which left him with only two more of Rose's sons, Merrick and Gary. Using the same methods that Hutchison was able to rule out Ronald and Russell with, he couldn't do for Merrick. There wasn't enough data available for him online during the time frame that was in question. But not wanting to jeopardize his investigation by going outside of his sources, he quietly moved on to the fourth brother, Gary. If he could eliminate Gary, then Merrick was more than likely his guy. In March of 2022, Hutchison landed on a Facebook profile for a grandchild of Rose and Rudolph, and whose name had been listed in both of their obituaries. 
So after a little more Facebook stalking and internet sleuthing, Hutchison was able to determine that this grandchild of Rosen Rudolph was also the child of Gary Ramirez, which was perfect because now Hutchinson had someone that he could contact to swab for DNA. So the DNA that was collected from Rose's grandchild, a.k.a. Gary Ramirez's child, was compared through genetic genealogy to the unknown male at the 1982 crime scene. And when the results came back, they were shocking. They showed that these two people were father and child, meaning 75-year-old Gary Ramirez, son of Rose and Rudolph Sr., was responsible for Karen Stitt's murder in 1982, which was such great news. Now they just had to track down Gary, who was 2,400 miles away, living on the island of Maui. So a little bit about Gary, if anyone cares. Unfortunately, Gary was brought into the world June 4th, 1946. He grew up in Fresno before enlisting into the Air Force in the early 1970s. He married twice, working odd jobs here and there before he retired on disability due to a bad hip. Gary lived all throughout the U.S., mainly in California, but he did venture out to Colorado and then to Hawaii, where he had been living for years with his older brother, Rudy. And that's about as much as I want to share about him. Detective Hutchison solving this case was obviously a huge moment and a huge accomplishment for him. But all he could think about was sharing the news with Karen's living relatives. And sadly, there weren't many. Hutchison said he owes it all to them. They did all the hard work keeping hope alive for 40 years, keeping Karen's memory alive and continuing to care for her. And Karen's friends and family were so happy at the news that someone was going to be responsible for Karen's death. They felt relief and grief. Having all those old wounds torn back open again wasn't easy. Gary's arrest on murder charges came without warning on August 2nd after months of planning and coordinating on law enforcement's part. Gary was shocked by his arrest when cops showed up at his door, cuffed him, and escorted him out of the guest house that he had been living in. Gary's brother, who also lived on the property, tried to convince officers that this arrest was a total mistake, saying that his brother had never been in trouble in his whole life and there was no way that he'd ever heard a fly. But police weren't convinced. Obviously, they had their evidence. When an ex-boyfriend of Karen's, Michael Calhoun, learned about the arrest, he says that he just remembers Karen being not like any girl that he had ever met. He said even as a teenager, he knew that she was someone special and someone that he definitely wanted to continue to get to know. He talked about her smile, her beautiful blonde feathered hair, and the way that she spoke. He said that she was different than any other girl. You can tell that he really loved her, and he admits falling really hard for her. He says that Karen was his first true love, and he thinks that she knew it too because she gave him a ring of hers, kind of like a promise ring, I guess you could say. It was a copper ring that she wore with her name on it, and Michael still has it to this day. Gary was extradited back to Sunnyvale, California and formally booked on August 22, 2022. His extradition was largely funded by a grant the DA's office received in 2021 from the U.S. Department of Justice to pursue cold cases. Gary's being held in the Santa Clara County Main Jail on charges of murder with special circumstances, engaging in the commission of a kidnapping and rape, and being armed with a dangerous or deadly weapon in the commission of a felony. If Gary is found guilty once his trial rolls around, he will face life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
Thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Those Murder Girls Podcast. I will see you back here next week with a brand new episode. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Reina, and edited by our lovely producer, Jules. Bye, guys.